0: morning. Welcome to Lion and Lamb in Topeka, Kansas. I say that because uh, our data shows that uh, last week people were listening from all over the country. I suppose somebody invited them. Uh, but uh, that's great. Uh, before we get started today, I've got a few preliminaries I want to go through. Uh, immediately following this message, we're going to go directly into the Lord's Table. And uh, if you can, if you haven't already prepared, we encourage you to, to get some juice and some bread or crackers so that when that time comes, you'll be ready to go. Uh, if you haven't seen, if you're a uh, tech Neanderthal like me uh, and you haven't gotten the handouts, they are on the home page. Sorry. Okay, sorry. We, it's my fault. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. Prepare for the Lord's table, and uh, that was my fault that the sound wasn't on, uh, and uh, uh, get your juice in, your, your crackers out. Uh, if you if you don't have the handouts, you can go to the home page of the website and uh, just click on the top there. There's a little place where you can see the, uh, the place where you can download those handouts. There's a handout for this lesson. Uh, Be patient with us, as you can tell, we're still trying to figure all this technological stuff out, uh, uh, including me, Uh, so uh, this is a different world we're in and and we're trying to do the best that we can. And finally, uh, this is our traditional Palm Sunday and this may not uh, sound like a Palm Sunday message, but believe me, we'll get there because most of our messages end in the same place. Uh, we're today going to be covering the last passage in a series we've been doing called That You May Know, uh, and we're going to go start at 1 John 5, starting at verse 13. If you want to turn there, it's near the end of the Bible, before 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. So uh, do that, and I just want to ask, first of all, a question about our present circumstances. Certainly we have trials, we have problems with uh, just all over the world right now, and when we're faced with trials, we are to count it all inconvenient, a hassle, pain, discouragement. No, we are to count it all joy as believers, and so I would encourage all of us to consider who we are and be an encouragement to those around. We need to give hope and light and encouragement to everybody. So in that vein, I'm going to do something that most would recommend I not do because we don't have an audience here. We just got a handful of devoted saints who are sacrificing their time to be here today, not with their families. Uh, And we don't have any clacking, which is you know on TV when they tell a, they give a funny line and you hear this laughter we don't have that so I'm gonna go through some things that maybe people would say during this time uh, in our history that we're facing right now the biggest thing that's I think that's hit our culture is all the kids that were in traditional schools are now at home and their parents are trying to figure out what to do with them so maybe somebody has said Alexa, homeschool the kids. Or, got to say, that class of 2020 sure outdid themselves with their senior skip day. Or somebody might say, hey, just like that, prayer and spankings are back in school. Yeah. Or maybe one mom shouts to another mom across the yard, across the fence, if you see my kids locked outside, mind your own business, we're having a fire drill. Okay. Uh, There's one more that I think adds some wisdom and some perspective to our situation. And it goes like this. Your grandparents were called to war. You are being called to sit on the couch. You can do this. And that's true. You can. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps and now I'm in the, the law field and What we try to do in both of those areas is prepare prepare for the worst-case scenario. And in 1 John, John is trying to prepare us for the worst case, which is what? We die. And not only to prepare you for that, but so that you may know what's going to happen when you die, and it is a good thing. So I'm going to start here in 1 John 5. Uh, and read our passage. It's a little bit longer, so I I hope you can follow along with me uh, in in your own Bibles. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, Keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you love us. And we know that you want us to be assured of where we will spend eternity. Help us, Lord, to comprehend your great love for us through your word and how we can know for sure that we will be there with you in eternity. Amen. Um, You know, knowing the truth is important to all of us. It seems self-evident. And John writes this letter that we call 1 John to tell us many things that are true and that he believes are vital to the believer. So our main idea today is this. We can be assured by the truths that we belong to the God who answers prayer and that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. As believers, we know that the existence of this world can only be explained and understood if we accept the logical necessity of the existence of that which is beyond this natural world. We call that the supernatural, a supreme being or God. But then we have to deal with our relationship with that God and that's where Christ and Christianity come in. In order to have that relationship, John wants us to know certain truths. Christianity is not a faith that says, I hope so, or I think so, but rather a solid rock faith saying, I know so in my innermost being. So we're going to go over five truths that John covers in this passage today that we can know. And the first one is that we have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This whole book has been leading up to this verse. This is the climax. And the first point here is John is writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And he knows that we have weaknesses and that we, even though we're saved, we can have doubts. So the very heart of his reason for writing this letter is to remove those doubts so that we might have assurance in order to know that we have eternal life. Now, we've mentioned several tests or evidences of salvation throughout this book in this series, and those tests have at their core the three themes of belief, obedience, and love. So if you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you're not perfect, but you're characterized by obedience and love, you can be assured of your eternal state at this very moment and forever. We don't have to be dogged by doubts because we feel ignorant about the Bible, or we stumble over a sin now and then, or because we don't feel some particular emotion. As Christians, we all suffer with these issues. When we love and come to Him in our weaknesses, He is always there and we can have confidence, not in our faith, this is not faith in faith, but it's faith in Him and His promises. We can and should take Jesus at His word. When He said in John 9, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So His true sheep do hear, they know, and they follow Him, and they're secure in His sheepfold forever. A true sheep belonging to Jesus might stray, might fall into a sin, but will always come back to the sheepfold and follow the shepherd. The next truth that we can know is that God answers prayer. And we're going to take the first two of these verses here in this next section. This is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So, uh, Immediately following the climax of this whole thing, we get into some difficult passages here. Verses 14 and 15 are about petitions, and the assurance of eternal life brings confidence that our prayers will be answered. We touched upon this earlier in 1 John 3, where John gave the first two requirements for prayers to be answered. He said, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we first keep his commandments, And secondly, we do what pleases Him. Here, John adds, the final requirement is that we ask according to His will. Now, with these three, John says, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of Him. Now, getting down to reality, I think we as Christians pray genuinely, and we believe it's a good thing to pray for others, and part of that prayer is supplication and prayer for certain things to happen or not happen, that's all good. What causes us problems sometimes is when our request does not occur. We look back at, at verses like this that say that God answers prayer and say, why didn't he answer my prayer? Why do I not have the request that I have asked of him? Well, that's a good question. Let's go back and consider how we are to pray. Jesus told us in Matthew 6 when he said, Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. You know, I don't know that you include that in every prayer, but it's not a bad idea because that's the main thing, is that his will be done. The problem is, what we want, what we generally see as good and desirable, and maybe it's a godly thing, may not be according to his plan, according to his will, or it may not be the right time. One great man of prayer was George Mueller, who managed and ran several orphanages in the 1800s without ever asking for assistance or even taking a regular salary believing that he should instead rely solely upon God for provision. And Mueller said, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of His willingness. We pray for things because we know we have a loving Father who wants us to be dependent upon Him for daily bread and because we are told to have a relationship with Him by talking to Him in prayer. So when we pray for something, and we do encourage you to pray every single day, it's important to remember a very simple phrase that Mike has used several times that clarifies pretty much everything related to our relationship with God. It is that He is God and I am not. As hard as it is to grasp, if we can understand that He has a plan far above our understanding. It is a plan and a purpose that is good for us, ultimately. He knows far better what is good for us than what we know, because he knows the big picture. He's what we call omniscient. He knows everything, and he knows the future, and he knows what his plan is, and sometimes that means we're going to suffer for his plan. He will answer prayer. prayer. It may be a yes, it may be a wait, but it may also be a no when it does not fit His will, His plan, His purpose, when it's not according to His will. And you might ask fairly, how do we know His will? Well, we're not omniscient, so we don't always know it. But one way to know more about what His will is, is simply to read His Bible. Make that a regular practice that you have. Going on to the next couple of verses here, we're getting into dangerous territory here. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, these verses are about intercession, specifically when we see Another, overtaken in sin. When dealing with passages as difficult as this one, teachers should be more humble than usual. In other words, less dogmatic. John starts with a reference to a fellow follower of Christ committing sin that does not lead to death. And then he goes on and talks about a sin that leads to death. I believe that John is addressing spiritual, not physical death here. In the first reference, it's clearly about a brother or sister in Christ, a believer who is sinning. Therefore, I would interpret this to mean that the sin of a believer does not lead to spiritual death because he or she has genuine faith in Christ's sacrifice as payment for that sin. For that believer, Christ is both the atonement for that sin and their advocate so that eternal life is preserved. In other words, they're saved. But at this point, we need to take into account the whole counsel of Scripture, particularly John's warnings that we covered a few months ago in 1 John 3. And there he states, starting in verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, When we consider these two passages together, it seems that a believer does not die spiritually or lose salvation by sin. I think we can all agree on that within our church. However, repentance and confession are in the nature, the DNA of the true believer. A person may claim or even believe himself that he is saved, but if that person is in the practice of sin and keeps on sinning without repentance and confession of sin, John says it will eventually become evident that that person is not a child of God, but as he said, of the devil. In other words, he is not saved in reality. Again, this is not about losing your salvation, but rather is about the deception about salvation when a person never really truly believed in the first place. Now, I've had to wrestle with this within my own extended family because I've known of others who have been taught about Christ and His sacrifice for us, taught about the truth about sin, but have continued in sin. It's not easy to distinguish a rebellious loved one from one who is simply making a practice of sin because that is their nature. So, what do we do with a situation like that when we're unsure of the spiritual position of, of a loved one in 1st John 5 16 it says we are to ask in other words pray that God would work in his or her heart to bring repentance and restoration to reassure, reassure all of us including that person of their eternal salvation we are to continue to love that person through their difficulties and if the faith of that person is genuine that person's eyes will open up and they will see the problems they face. Perhaps, in some cases, it will take the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father as mentioned in Hebrews 12, but it will come as that person is secure in their position with Christ. If that sin continues, at some point it will become evident, John says to us and hopefully to that person, that he or she is not saved, despite maybe that they mouthed a prayer when they were young. Again, it's not our call to judge whether they're saved or not, but it, do, it may affect how we view the spiritual state of that person and how we respond to that person. It may be that we no longer assume that person is saved. And that may be the most loving thing we can do, is not play the charade. We continue to love, but perhaps we're asking questions, or maybe we, we become more of a witness to that person. John mentions next a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, this is a very difficult verse to interpret. First, John does not refer to a brother or a believer. And secondly, he does not command that we not pray for that person. Now, there are various views on this this verse. One is that John is referring here to a willful and deliberate sin. An an example might be Ananias and Sapphira when they lied about their offering in Acts 5. Another might be the incestuous man uh, in 1 Corinthians 5. Another view is that John here is referring to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is warned as an unforgivable sin in in, uh, Matthew 12 and Mark 3. Finally, some see this verse as referring to a total rejection of the gospel by false teachers or antichrist who teach willful, stubborn, and persistent opposition to the person and the work of Christ. John refers to these in chapter 2 where he says, children, it is the last hour, And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with with us. But they went out that it might become plain, it might become evident that they all are not of us. Now I'm not gonna insist here that I'm correct here, but I would lean toward that third, option as the clearest within the context of this passage. Those separated from the true church by deliberate rejection of Christ as they were really never in the church or saved in the first place. Those who willfully and irrevocably reject what the Bible says about Christ have essentially guaranteed for themselves spiritual death. It becomes plain or evident that they are not of us within the true church. Now, to pray for them is not forbidden. I think what John may be saying here is it may be an exercise in futility. I could be wrong, I may have oversimplified here, of course, uh, but my take is that sin leading to death is that it all manifests, makes plain, or evidences that a person never was saved in the first place. Now, having addressed the exception in verse 16, John returns to the rule in verse 17 that all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, it reminds those who are genuinely saved how much for which they should be grateful. That even though we will sin as believers, we have a loving Father who has provided forgiveness through the sacrifice of His Son to pay the price for our sin. Our position in eternity is a source of security freely given which we should never take for granted. This doesn't call for a spirit of entitlement, but a spirit of gratefulness. Any wrongdoing is sin, period, even by believers. And it should be recognized, not rationalized. True believers will recognize it and then repent. Repentance also calls us to go seek forgiveness from those we have hurt or offended. And by this, we have the byproduct, of we get rid of guilt. And who wants to carry guilt around? When we see other believers sin, we can and should pray for them. This is one way that the body of Christ is drawn and held together because we care about one another enough to pray for and love, and in some cases, if necessary, confront one another about a sin. It may be a blind spot that they don't even understand they're they're involved with, that they're sinning. Faithful intercession of one believer for another is a powerful weapon. Charles Spurgeon said, all hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in importunate supplication. And this leads directly to the next truth that we have, that we have victory over sin. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. John returns one more time in his letter to this born of God or new birth, the very thing of which he wants all of us to be assured. To summarize his teaching through his letter Uh, I put on your, your study sheet there some of the commands or some of the evidences of the new birth. I'll just run down them quickly. We keep His commands because He's our Father. We walk as Jesus walked, as our example. We're lovers, not haters. We love the Father, not the world and its temptations. We confess the Son and have Him in our hearts. We do what is right. We do not continue in sin. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We listen to the Word when it's taught. We believe Jesus is the Messiah. We have overcome the world. We believe Jesus is the Son of God, and we know that Jesus protects from the evil one. In verse 18, John reassures that those born of God have victory over sin. First, the genuine believer does not keep on sinning. We just covered that. Again, this is not that Christians never sin. It's just that it is never a pattern. We're not characterized by sin. As Paul puts it, we are not under the dominion of sin. Secondly, he who was born of God protects the believer. Now, this gets a little confusing in our English translations. There are no capitals in the original, but it helps us to understand by using capital letters who's on first if we use them. So the context here and the whole of Scripture would indicate that Jesus Christ, our Advocate, is the one who was born of God and is protecting those who have been born of God. We see this in several other passages that are on your study sheet. Finally, common sense tells us that we do not protect ourselves from Satan. Rather, it is Jesus who not only gave me salvation... But by his works on the cross, he also maintains it and is, as Hebrews 7 says, able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Therefore, the third promise is that the evil one does not touch the believer. The word touch here means to grab hold of, to cause harm. So the the devil may grab and tempt us through various means, but he cannot overcome the power of Christ and we are protected. The believer may stumble, but he or she cannot be harmed in any ultimate or final sense because of his protection. And due to that protection, the believer, as John says, cannot keep on sinning. Uh, By these promises, John gives us assurance that we have victory over sin. We should remember what John said earlier. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil in 1 John 3. The next truth that we know is that we belong to our Father. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this verse gives us both a reality check and a great comfort Regardless of what happens around us as the world falls apart and more and more perverse sin uh, because of plagues and other calamity, we know we belong to our loving Father as his children. He holds us firmly in his arms. On the other hand, unbelievers who either do not think about eternity or who depend on the lies of the world or false teachers are actually under the control and the power of Satan. Satan. God's words tells us the strategy of the evil one there. He blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. When the seed of the gospel is spread, he snatches it up uh, so that it cannot take root. He will use false teachers to perform great signs and wonders to lead people astray. And finally, he lures in with desires of the flesh and pride. You can see all the scripture verses there on your study sheet. So in a very real sense, we are in a world as believers being attacked uh, by people largely controlled by Satan. The evil one often controls cultures and institutions around us. He is opposed to the spread of the gospel. He does all that he can to destroy Christ-led ministries, which care for the poor, the weak, the defenseless, including the most defenseless, most vulnerable, the unborn. He will use the current plague in which we are engulfed to discourage believers from giving help and support and hope to others through Christ. But thankfully, we can know that we are from God. And because we are from God, He protects us and enables us to overcome, for He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. And that leads to our final truth, that we can know what is true. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John began this letter in chapter 1 by writing about the beginning, testifying and proclaiming Quote, to us the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us, made clear to us, Jesus Christ. He ends with the very same subject, the truth of the Incarnation. We know that Jesus came and gave us understanding because He is the truth. He is not only the truth, He is eternal life. Genuine believers have all of this because we are in Him who is true, in the Son Jesus Christ. In our world of contrast, because there is a true God that establishes truth, there are also forces or gods that are not true. And while it seems like John ended this book with an oh, by the way, it really does tie into the central theme of assurance of salvation. To have that assurance, we must keep ourselves from idols. An idol is anything that takes the place of or is a substitute for the true God. Paul gives us some examples of idols in his warnings in Colossians 3, where he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In Ephesians 5, he says, Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolator, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, these are the apparent idols, and we rightly avoid and warn others to avoid these temptations, which infect our world and are clearly idolatry. However, there are more subtle idols, things or actions that are not bad, perhaps even good in themselves. An idol can be the things that we live in and live out in our daily lives, like our jobs, our marriage, our children, even our morality, when any of those things take the place of our Heavenly Father. John Calvin once wrote that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. So if it takes priority over the true God as an object of our worship or the source of our confidence, it is an idol. It is anything that you and I love, enjoy, and seek after more than Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. However, there's one event in history when some incorrectly thought that people were idolizing another. And I'm going to read here from Luke 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you. Where you are entering, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered them, he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You know, just a few short weeks ago, none of us would have imagined that we'd be watching accounts of worldwide disease and death, even in the United States where nothing bad ever happens that this current plague has brought upon us. And we would certainly not think that we would be watching a sermon at home. So our world has changed very quickly quickly, but when Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a man, people believed that he was their Messiah to free them from Roman rule, but just a few short days later, after people cried out, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, his own disciples betray him and some of the same people who previously praised him like god would mock scorn and scream that the man jesus should be nailed to a cross now with 2020 hindsight we marvel at the lack of faithfulness displayed by these people even some of his disciples of course we know better because john tells us that jesus the son of god was from the beginning He was the word of life, and that life was made manifest, and we have seen it, testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, 1 John 1. And then in John John 1, uh, John told us that Jesus became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, I'm sure that all of us have prayed for protection and quick return to jobs and normal society and our comfortable lives again. And it's good to pray for the healing of the sick and that we be able to assemble again in person sooner rather than later. However, God has clearly allowed this to happen to us. So the question has occurred to me and perhaps to you, Could it be that God may be trying to get our attention? He may be trying to ask us, have you considered how busy you are? How many things take up your time? Maybe so busy with so many things. Maybe good things. But they take priority over me, your Father. Is that possible? And when we consider where we are in history are we any less guilty than those who praised him as messiah upon his entry into Jerusalem but then who called for his crucifixion Now we have not only hindsight but we have his word so really we're without excuse This may be a time to reevaluate our lives and our priorities So to wrap up, not only this message, but this whole series. Uh, Through this series, we have studied what the Apostle John wrote to us in his letter so that we may know we have eternal life. And this after Jesus had warned many in Matthew 7 that on the day of judgment, some who had called him Lord would not enter the kingdom of heaven, even some who did many wonderful things in his name. So these are not people who deny the existence of God or who scoff the thought of a Savior. These are people sitting in churches all over the world who think they're saved, but Jesus warned that he will say to some of them, I never knew you. Please read it, and I hope you do not weep, in Matthew 7. John's message is simple. And he pleads with us throughout his letter. John simply wants us to be sure that we know the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that he knows us. As I mentioned at the beginning of this message, John's point, his, his main thrust in this book can be distilled down to three words. Believe, obey, and love. First, you can know the truth and be assured of eternal life if you see in yourself not perfection but certain consistent behavior and character. First, you believe in with a faith that stays in your heart that Christ died for your sins and only He can pay the price to satisfy God's perfect justice with His perfect love. Next, that you obey His commands. Now, those that obedience does not save you but it tells you who your father is, who you're listening to, who you're following. And you might ask, which commands? Well, Jesus instructed all of us to focus on the two great commands. Love God and love your neighbor. To be sure, this very moment, this moment in history, is one of the most uncertain times that you and I have ever faced. Therefore, if there's any question in your mind, can you think of a better time than now to obtain rock-solid security and assurance of your life after this one? So I want to invite you. I think my email is at the bottom of your study sheet and uh, there's a couple other ways to contact. If you have any questions, if you want to know, you know, something about this message or if you want to know what it means to have eternal life or to be sure that you have eternal life, call this number and leave a message or get on this uh, this email and send a message uh, and we will talk to you. We would love to talk to you because there is no Question. There's no issue that's more important than this one, where you're going to spend eternity. And John and we want you to know. Uh, there are some questions at the end of your study sheet, and I hope you'll take time as a family at home to go over those and uh, consider those things because they're important. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give all glory and honor to you and you alone. Lord, may our hearts be that faithful that we allow nothing to come between us, no idol that would be more important than you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord God, you are great. You are awesome. You are omniscient, you're omnipotent, and you have overcome the world you allow us to live here victoriously over sin. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the the word that you've given us that allows us to know that we have eternal life. We give all praise and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, right now we're going to move into the Lord's table. And uh, I'm going to in in just a moment, uh, read a few things here um, about that. And uh, uh, I want you to understand that the Lord's Table is for believers, okay? So if if you're sure that you're not a believer, uh, you probably should not participate. But if you've got your elements there, the, the juice and the bread or crackers, you can do that with us right now. And what we do in the Lord's Table is we focus on Christ's sacrifice for us. Uh, and uh, it's not about us, it's about Him. And uh, it may involve us because we may need to confess something because our sin creates a problem between us and Him, and we want to confess those things. You may need to confess or ask forgiveness from somebody sitting next to you on the couch right now, but I encourage you to do that. So uh, the way this is going to work is, I'm going to read a little bit here for you, and then... uh, I, I encourage you to spend some time in prayer. Uh, we're not going to take a lot of time here, but we'll do that, and you take the, uh, the bread, and then I'll come back, and, uh, and I'll read a little bit more, and we'll take the cup together, and then uh, we'll have a few announcements after that. Um, after Jesus entered Jerusalem, uh, quite a few things happened. You know, if you read the, the cheater notes in your Bible, I'm just going to go over this quickly, uh, he weeps over Jerusalem and uh, he goes in and he cleanses the temple for, with the getting out the money changers and he, he has his authority challenged and he uh, he tells the parable of the wicked tenants and he tells them to pay taxes to Caesar and he's uh, he's he gets into a dialogue with the Sadducees about the resurrection and who is the son of Christ and and he tells them to beware the scribes and tells them about the widow's offering, how she gave more than anyone else. He he prophesies the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, and he talks about wars and persecution, the coming of the Son of Man, the parable about the fig tree, and, and he warns us about many things. Uh, but uh, then he gets eventually to his last time with his disciples. And he had a busy week. But near the end of that week, this is what it says in Luke 22. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord God, We just give you all praise, all glory. You are the one and only. And you love us so much that you recognize that we are sinners and we needed payment. We need somebody to pay for that sin because we cannot possibly pay back for our sins. And you loved us so much that you provided your only son to do that. And he went to the cross sinless as a spotless lamb to be sacrificed for our sins, to satisfy your perfect justice with your perfect love. Thank you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that now you would bring to mind anything that's keeping any of the saints from you, that they would be confessed, that we could all look to you with clean hearts and know of your exceeding and unlimited love for us. In Jesus' name. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood.